Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 13th of July, as we record. I am a bit croaky today due to spending too much time talking in a noisy room yesterday evening, but we are going to persevere nonetheless. Coming up on today's show, we look at full-year figures from insolvency specialist Begbie's trainer and ponder what they tell us about the health of the company and indeed the health or otherwise of the UK economy. Then we turn to our cover feature this week, which is all about investment in the North Sea. An increasingly controversial topic, but I think there's no doubt its energy output is still of major interest. Whether that production is based on oil, gas or wind power is, of course, a different question and one we are going to discuss later on. After that, we will turn to the raft of announcements made this week regarding UK pension schemes and market structure, some high profile, some less so. And we'll ask whether they can achieve their goals of reinvigorating UK company investment. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Mark Robinson. Hi, Dan. And in the studio, Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, Dan. I was going to say your vocal fry, you know, only lends an authority. Good. I'm yeah, glad. Yeah. Some much needed. Don't worry about it. Much needed authority. On this investment life. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Alex Hamer. Hey. And Leonora Walters. Hi. As I say, Begbie's trainer then, Mark. You covered the annual results out earlier this week. How did they look? I did. I did, with uh, a certain degree of glee as well. They, on the face of it, though, they were pretty positive. You know, we had a, a 17% increase in uh, adjusted operating profit. The underlying margin was heading in the right direction too. And uh, management great store uh, made great store of the fact that uh, they boosted uh, free cash flow, even though they paid a, you know, there was an overall increase in dividend payments as well. Uh, so, you know, on the face of it, there were a decent set of results, but I think it's the underlying story, really, which is probably of more interest to our listeners. Yeah, we, we will come on to that very shortly, of course, but uh, it's probably worth spending a little bit of time talking about the business itself to begin with. One thing we, we should say first up is that insolvency isn't the only string to its bow. It does have, you know, no. fairly big uh, uh, other aspects to the business, which has been growing and acquiring businesses in those areas, too. Yeah, um, I made the point that, that it's been rising uh, year on year as well. And I think revenues from that non-insolvency work, they account for about 40% of the, the group total. And uh, management was also keen to point out that uh, they've got uh, pretty healthy rates of recurring revenue. Uh, and by that, they're not referring to individual uh, customers themselves, but the types, the types of business they're finding they're getting uh, more and more volumes through. So that those kind of things they can uh, that might relate to like corporate finance and that's buying sell support on um, on corporate transactions. You would imagine that would be uh, slightly down uh, at the moment, but they've also got uh, a strong financial advisory team there as well. And when you think about it, you know you know the the, the company as a whole is used to seeing. The, the strains, uh, the economic strains on individual companies. So they're probably in a pretty good place, you would imagine, to, uh, to advise on corporate stress as well. And, and that can that can apply to uh, uh, debt advisory and um, a pensions advisory also, um, uh, links to financial restructuring and uh, uh, forensic, forensic accounting as well. Uh, so it's quite broad-based. They've also got a, a growing 
a property consultancy and they cover a lot of different areas there you know commercial property management that's obviously a, a hot topic at the moment anyway uh, but also things like proprietary risk management there and um, uh, specialist insurance too they um they're 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 an acquisitive company obviously and they bought uh, three chartered surveyors during uh, the period under review as well which will uh, obviously uh, feed into that consultancy so yeah that's that's a bigger part of the business um but um you know part of the the reason i was interested in and in looking at them uh, this time around was because obviously we've seen increased weakness in the in the uk economy mm. well what kind of weakness are are we seeing or, or do the results suggest we are seeing uh well uh, even ahead of time i was looking at some a recent government report which uh pointed out that uh, the level of insolvencies in england and wales had increased by 40 percent in the year through to may uh, it, it may be i mean this is pure speculation but interest rates have uh, been on the rise now for about a year and a half and it could be that you know the 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 negative impact that is only just becoming apparent there's an inherent lag between interest rate pressure and economic performance and plus you've had during that period as well you know the inflationary environment and, and wage inflation is also picking up quite dramatically and there's a bit of a lag there until that comes through so companies might be under more stress now than they were uh, a year ago or even six months ago and that's why the figures we, we may be at, at, at a tipping point who, who can say mm. also we, i've before I was covering the results as well, I, I just had was looking at some of the, the recent uh, economic surveys and business surveys, uh, in particular the Institute of Directors, their uh, Economic Conf- Confidence Index, and looked at it since the beginning of the year, and it's been sort of oscillating quite wildly as well, which suggests that uh, there's a, a degree of anxiety in, in the economy. It doesn't seem that business leaders uh, are necessarily... Uh, completely downcast on prospects, but there's a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, so, you know, it's for that that reason itself, I would imagine that conditions on the face of it have improved for insolvency practitioners and, and, and in fact, their special advice arm as well. Mm. Uh, there is this question about, you know, with all parts of the economy now, isn't there, with interest rate transmission mechanisms and how long they take to feed through. Obviously, the mortgage housing market is a big aspect of that. But also, you know, this side of things too, because to me, it does seem the economy is still, you know, perhaps more resistant than we might have thought, even at this stage, notwithstanding that delayed transmission. I think Begbie's say themselves, when it comes to administrations of big companies, they're still below pre-pandemic levels they were in the last 12 months which given rates are much higher even in that period is maybe slightly surprising yeah i mean that's why i say you know perhaps we are at a point now where we're going to start seeing a little bit more weakness but your point Mm. is exactly right you know the the economy has seemed far more resilient than um, most commentators had had been expecting as well yeah on to begbies itself uh alex bring you in now alex newman just because i know you we're looking at this earlier. I mean, the shares are down 6% over the past year, despite, you know, they, they raised guidance a couple of months ago. And and obviously the narrative of, you know, higher interest rates equal more insolvencies is, you know, quite compelling. I mean, does this, does that, you know, relatively, well, pretty poor share price performance in the context, very much in line with the market, does that just underline that it's actually quite difficult to 
to make money from an, a narrative, even if it seems plausible on the surface? Or are there other reasons mm. why they might have underperformed? Yeah, it's, it's an, an interesting one. I mean, that uh, it's sort of just as insolvency work looks like it's about to hit a real purple patch, um, you know, it, the market's kind of a little bit quiet on on the story, despite it being it being actually a brilliant long term holding for investors. So, um, sort of over ten years, the share price return is compounded at nearly fifteen percent. And if you reinvested dividends that have been steadily improving um, year on year since twenty seventeen, that that jumps to nineteen percent um, compound returns. So it's like really one of the the leaders across you know the, the London market. Now things look like this is you know where you'd expect Begbies to perform, and there's been the there's been the drift as, as you said. I mean, there's a couple of reasons which might explain it. I think there's a perennial thing with um, Begbies trainers shares, which it's easy to um, confuse matters. Is that their reported profits and their net margin always looks very very thin because they. Um, uh, you know they they've got sort of decent-ish margins as as Mark, Mark alluded to at the gross level. Even when you add in other costs and and sort of paying staff and these you know aren't always cheap people to employ professional services people. Um, you've still got a you know a decent uh, adjusted operating profit of about twenty two million pounds for the most recent financial year. The rub after that is 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 the investments in the business and they have you know the reason they've been a good long term holding is that they've been. Uh, they've been um, very canny in the way they've bought up smaller businesses and integrated them, um, but it always does depress statutory profits, even though it is, it's been improving free cash flow over the long term. I think maybe one thing investors are considering, you know, potential bear point now, is that this inorganic growth, which we've we've seen in recent years, requires what well, it now it's now going to require greater scale purchases um, to sort of move move the needle. And there's all probably an awareness among the selling principles of firms that might get bought that um, that we are now in a boom market for restructuring work and insolvencies. So they might be commanding a higher multiple. In other words, it might be it might be getting more expensive for Begbies to grow in the way they have they have been growing. Um, because then, because just the nature of their their market is improving, so it's, it's kind of contradictory in that sense that things are looking better, but that might mean it's it's getting a bit harder for them to deliver for shareholders. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I had a look at the the net margin actually just before we came on, and that it is rather thin, two point four percent, and and for a consultancy that that seems desperately low. That's more in line with the uh, the supermarkets themselves. But on the point about um, the M and A as well. They've got the the high tr- transaction costs this time around. They accounted for seven percent of overall revenues, and the amortization charge as well, uh, arising from those acquisitions, is another six percent, which goes some way to explaining why that that margin uh, is so thin. I think, as well, it's maybe interesting to look at to consider competition, not least in the insolvency area where. You know, again, this is like many growth markets. You expect, you know, again, this is a big opportunity, but often it depends on, you know, what other people are doing in that market and how many people are interested in that market. And uh, you know, Begbie's themselves, I think, to break down in their their figures, their presentation, the the nature of that market is quite interesting for me to see. You know, that actually there's still a large large proportion of uh, you know this business is being done by lots of regional, small, local firms. So, on one level, might not cost that much to hoover up a load of them at least in yeah. terms of how much you pay if not how much how much the financing costs but on another level you know it's a very fragmented market and they are the biggest players 
It is odd just how volatile their shares have been, though. And Alex points out over the long term, they've been a you know a good investment. There's no doubt about it at all. But um, my, you know, Michael Taylor in a previous piece he's done them has has pointed out the fact that their the volatility of the share prices is, is is at odds with the company's fundamentals, and it's quite true as well. And I had a look uh, recent history as well, and. When you looked at the short-term average, that moved above um, or dipped below rather the 200-day moving average back in March, which provides um, a negative symbol, the, the death cross uh, rather ominously. Uh, and since then, the share price did fall away, but those those uh, those averages have started to co coalesce now and it's come back up. But it is, it is quite strange just how volatile the shares have been, even though um, th those moves have been you know, fairly short in duration. Well, let's turn now to our cover feature this week, which, as I say, is on the North Sea. Alex Hamer, our news editor, you have written this piece. What's what is? Yeah, big <laughs> a. What is it about? We kind of know what it's about. B. The big question: What is the what is the future of the North Sea? I guess is what everyone is uh, increasingly asking. If they ever stopped asking it. Yeah, I just have to stop reeling from the technical analysis there by Mark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just highly impressive. Um, so the, the North Sea is in a funny spot right now. Obviously, everyone has been thinking very hard about how the UK can keep the lights on, basically. And through that, the answer is we need a fairly good supply of gas. Renewables are good because we don't have to buy things after we've paid to build them. Um, but when the wind slows down, what are we doing? Um and at the same time, there's this sense from the public um, reflected in, our, in, in policies from the government that how dare these oil and gas companies make huge profits from the North Sea um, while we're struggling to, to, to pay the bills further down the supply chain. So you've got all this thrown in together um, at the same time as, you know, there is obviously still the idea that we probably don't want to um, destroy the planet um, in a few decades, and then how do we probably, probably don't want to do that? Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Ideally, ideally, no. Um, and then how do we put all that into um, uh, an energy system that is rapidly changing, no matter the the actions of of um, a handful of energy companies? Um, who you know, just just the the little bit of context there is. Shell and BP have said in recent months that they will focus on what they're good at, which is extracting oil and gas. Um, and part of that comes from investor pressure and they look at the, the valuations of, of the North American majors. Um, and so so what happens if, if these huge cash-rich companies aren't spending massively on, on green projects. But that's a, that's a side issue. I guess what I wanted to look at with this feature was, as an investor, how do you benefit from this changing landscape um, in the North Sea? And it's, it's tricky. I mean, right now, um, the UK has, has dropped um, or is, is in a position where its, it's oil and gas production is, is far lower than it was 20 years ago. It's far lower than it was... Um, 10 years ago and yet we've also had a lot of uh, optimization to use a jargony word i mean you've got companies in the north sea who are, that mid caps who are using um you know more efficient extractive 
techniques. They they know what they're doing. Um, they've worked on these wells for for many years, and they are making a lot of profits, even though the government is taking a bigger a bigger chunk than it was um, two years ago. Um, and obviously, prices have, have fallen, but they're still pretty good. So you've got you've got companies paying good dividends um, with an outlook that that you know it might be as positive. I mean, we're probably not going to get to twenty twenty two, late twenty twenty one levels of profits again anytime soon. But you you know there there are there are fairly chunky dividends to get um, as an investor. Um, the longer term view, um, outside of that that immediate shareholder returns, is the North Sea is, is will continue to grow as a renewable energy hotspot. Um, we saw BP this week um, put up billions and billions of euros um, to have the right to develop um, two separate wind farms um, offshore in the North Sea in German territory. Um, you know that slightly goes against what I just said about them pulling away from that investment, but they're they're you know they're identifying projects that will make the money, and this seems to be one of those. So. As an investor, how do you position yourself? It, obviously, that's a whole lot of information, and I'm sure writing it down, it's a lot clearer. So please read the story. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a sticky one, really. Yeah. Well, well, we'll come back to wind in a minute, but just on the on oil and gas and on the windfall tax, the energy profits levy, which you were talking about, you know, companies, as is, you know, they want obviously, uh, you know, have complained about this quite vociferously, there has now been a, a price floor introduced in a bid to, you know, I think the government has always been trying at least to encourage investment at the same time as, as you know, taking a higher uh, tax take. So what's your assessment of how that tax has affected things, if at all? Does that change kind of the short, medium term yeah. uh, prospects for these companies? I, I think there are three companies that that show the impact of this quite well. There's Harbour Energy, um, which uh, came to the London market um, two or three years ago through Premier Oil. And it, they're a huge producer, the biggest independent producer in the North Sea. They have pulled um, planned spending um, from last year and this year. They've laid off 300, 350 people um, from that, their, their, I guess their North Sea teams. Um, and they are actively shifting that spending elsewhere, um, Gulf of Mexico. And so they are they are fully highly reactive to the higher tax, um, and that's because they were probably more open to it. They oh, oh, sorry, more more exposed to it, even though they're carrying big tax losses. Um, their I think their capital spending was was not high enough to to balance it out really. Um, so big impact there. Um, you've got a company like. Ithaca Energy, um, which is the controlling shareholder of the um, the Cambo oil field. Um, they also have a stake in Rosebank, which is similarly um, an undeveloped oil field that is, um, or oil and gas field, that is being um, put through the development process. Um, they're waiting on government sign-off. But for Cambo, um, they need to finance it. And they've found their, their, their lending situation has deteriorated this year. And therefore, they've pushed back their final investment decision. They're, they're currently marketing Shell's stake in the project, um, uh, to use their lingo, um, and they want to do that before they commit to expanding it further, or to developing it further. Um, so they are also heavily impacted by this tax. Um, if you look at a company like Serica Energy, which is smaller and basically got itself into a really healthy balance sheet, 
consistent production by this quite canny deal they they did where they bought um, uh, a handful of of, of uh, in production assets basically, um, and then but they they financed it through a shifting cash flow sharing deal um, with BP I think so they they basically ended up um, as prices were shooting up with um, full access to that cash flow. Um, so a really good balance sheet, and they they in December last year they joined another company or they they bought out another company called Tailwind. So they they they've I think they've um, increased their reserve space you know significantly over the last two years, and they're also really keen to spend so they can actually offset some of that tax hit. Um, so yes, their share price is weak. They haven't lost the fifty percent of their their market cap like um, Harbour has in the past year, but they're probably down twenty to thirty percent. They, they're making slightly less big decisions. They're they're funding um, kind of near field development. They're they're putting in, um, I guess you call them infill wells. That's kind of the they're spending you know ten million pounds on something instead of two hundred million pounds on something. Um, they would like to, you know, commit to big field level work, but they don't feel like it's the right environment. But they're still doing fine. Um, so there's a, there's a range of impacts, um, and the 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 big thing that everyone kept saying though was where we don't like the uncertainty. Um, we're we're pl- trying to plan to spend money on things that will make us money for ten twenty years, um, and we can't do that right now. In some ways, and just a final point on the uh, the government policy side of things, perhaps perhaps there is certainty. If that's not a contradiction in terms, uh, insofar as. Some of these you know, some big projects, small projects, be there, you know, Canberra, Rosebank or something smaller. Uh, Labour have said if they get into power, which they may well do next year, according to current polling, that they won't allow any new licences. So there is potentially a, a hard deadline there to get these projects through before that time, which might, you know, it's a strange and probably unwanted form of certainty and unusual, yeah. but, but there is that potential deadline coming up as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, the other side of this coin is, you know, talk to um, an energy investor about the North Sea as an investment destination. He says, you know, obviously the uncertainty is really bad, but the North Sea itself, you know, if you want big new fields, you're not looking at the North Sea anyway. Um, mm. So there's places where you can, so like, you know, Guyana's a hot spot right now. Um, people still really like the Gulf of Mexico. There's, there's spots that really will have that growth. Um, and it's probably not going to be in the North Sea. The tax hasn't helped if you want more domestic oil and gas production, but it's not like it's it's you know fully killed things off. Mm. You know, it's 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 a bit more it's a bit greyer than perhaps Harbour is putting it. Sure. Well, what about wind? Uh, you know, the the big potential and big growth area. That said, you know, a lot of the wind producers as well have their own complaints about the government uh, or certainly about policy and the direction of that. What, what are those kind of issues and also how can investors, you know, access these kind of opportunities in, in the UK? It's um, it's a really interesting space. I think the mad rush for, for wind was seen as probably two to three years ago when these huge sums were being spent on on access to, I mean, the, the big Crown Estate one that we all potentially know about was was the Irish Sea, not the North Sea, but it's the same vibe, you know, committing billions to to have these offshore um, development rights. Um, for investors now, though, the question is how much do you 
I'm once again we go to go to the outlook and certainty. But how much do you back the EU? For example, there's a North Sea Compact where they want to um, massively increase um, you know offshore development between um, you know it's the Dutch government's into it, the Germans are into it, Danish government's in it, the UK is in it. Um, that's from a couple of months ago. They want to massively ramp up the the capacity of the North Sea and. You know, I guess this German license um, or this German auction we've seen BP put cash into um, or commit to um, this week is a sign that, you know, things are moving. Um, if you look at the equities involved, um, there's it's kind of Orsted and not much else, really. Um, Orsted is developing um, its Hornsey 2 and 3 projects right now, which are huge wind farms in the North Sea in UK territory, um, and they, yeah, it's happening, basically. Um, they've spent the money, they've got the permitting. Um, that's a, that's one way in. Um, they're obviously quite bullish on the region because there are those those drivers through the EU um, and, and, and others um, really backing those. Um, if you talk to, you know, there's one person who works in the, the kind of stop oil space um and for her the idea that you wouldn't just put everything into um you know from an energy security point of view put everything into renewables uh is is silly basically um because it means once you have these um this infrastructure that's your energy supply and as we shift away i mean the way that the the energy companies put it is we're shifting from um or is it uh, joules to electrons? And so you have a more electron-based energy system where far less gas is used domestically um, than, you know, renewables is the whole game. Obviously, um, cutting the demand for gas is, you know, is not easy. Her response to that was basically um, they've managed to do it in, you know, Scandinavia, the Nordics, even Italy is cutting its gas usage massively and they're buying EVs and, yeah, they're still managing to cook pasta without a gas cooktop um, in a lot of new builds. Um, but that's kind of, she was like, we'll work it out, don't worry about it. Um, so I think on an investment front, you know, with all that as context, um, there are, you know, there are, there are funds available, not massively North Sea exposed, but if you want that kind of growth approach as opposed to fairly big dividend yields right now that is probably the way to go there, I mean, there's obviously lots of questions I think I think one thing that came out was everyone thinks there's going to be a lot more decommissioning spending um, there's so many rigs out there there's so many wells out there that that do need work um, the government will probably end up footing a bit of the bill but you look at the growth prospects um, in terms of um, that area you know I spoke to wood group they're pretty keen on decommissioning you look at a country company like petro um petrofac they've got you know contracts on this coming out the wazoo you know like it's i think that's a pretty reliable one and obviously those services companies do rely on new oil and gas um and i guess you know operational contracts for oil and gas as well as renewables um for income um but they're also exposed to decommissioning um unfortunately there's no decommissioning pure play listed um that i could find but you know 
maybe maybe one day you know as you know decommissioning is is increasing inevitably that will yeah i'll be back i'll be back off. on the pod pitching my decommissioning um <laughs> yeah you know, decommissioning plc in a year that you're that you're setting up yeah, yeah. there you go Thank you, Alex. That is the cover story this week, as we say, and there is a complex topic, so do pick that up and have a look if it's one that interests you. <laughs> to finish, though, we are going to turn to the big policy announcement of the week or the big set of policy announcements, uh, starting, Leonora, personal finance editor, with the most high profile or certainly the one that, that's you know garnered the headlines, which is DC pensions investing in unlisted assets. This has been trailed for a while, but the government and Jeremy Hunt in the Mansion House speech this week came out with some concrete uh, plans on what they're going to do. Yes, um, nine of the largest defined contribution pension schemes, which manage over two-thirds of UK defined contribution workplace pensions, have committed to allocating at least 5% of their default funds to enlisted equities by 2030. So that could well be, you know, you or me or, you know, quite a lot of employees out there. The nine providers in question are Aviva Scottish Widows, Legal and General, Aegon Phoenix Nest, Smart Pension, M&G and Mercer. And they've signed what is known as the Mansion House Compact. Now, the Chancellor has made a number of claims um, as to, um, you know, the reasons for doing this. Um, possibly even spurious claims. He says, for example, this could result in up to 50 billion of investment going to high growth companies by 2030. Uh, and perhaps even more fantastic, the Chancellor claims that um, this move and a number of other measures he set out on um, Monday and Tuesday um, could result in the average earner having over £1,000 more a year in retirement income due to the size of their pension pot increasing by 12% over the course of their career. Yeah. Sounds grand, doesn't it? It does. Obviously, that, I think it's fair to say, is, is unknowable and untestable. Yes. Uh, uh, but, but who knows, it may do. But yeah, but this is the, you know, 5% of these uh, schemes, default funds, will be in unlisted equities by 2030. There are There are some caveats to that insofar as if, if we look at the tangential or related goal of you know boosting uh, interest in UK companies, one of which being that this these unlisted assets don't necessarily need to be in unlisted UK companies. They might be in the UK, they might be abroad, we just don't know. But just as an example, private equity returns over the past 15 years have benefited from very low cost of capital when financing via debt. But obviously, this is no longer the case. It's no longer cheap. Um, so, you know, they're not going to be able to get cheap finance and profit as much um, as they used to. And the point about investing pensions in private equity is it costs more than just putting pensions, say, into bonds or listed equities. And higher costs, as we all know, when you invest, eat into returns. So, you know, that's one reason why this um, you know, great return might not happen. The the, the other point about you, the UK growth boost is that they say 50 billion, um, you know, of investment will go into unquoted companies. Well, that's only if the rest of the um, DC pension market follows suit. Um, and, you know, they might well not. I mean, for example, XPS Pensions, a consultant, did a flash poll on Tuesday after this was put out. Um, and um, it, it, it found that only about 30% of pension scheme representatives are broadly supportive of, of the Chancellor's plans to encourage pension schemes to invest in this way. So there's not exactly great 
enthusiasm, you know, for, for, for going into these assets. There were some other uh, announcements as well this week. We'll, we'll come on to some of the market structure ones in a minute. But on the pension side of things, a value for money framework uh, is also being looked at. I think in terms of the idea here seems to be that, uh, as you say, you know, costs mm. can eat into investment returns. This is more perhaps a, a going the other way to an extent, and, and uh, it seems to be what they're driving at, i.e. that despite the fact that costs can eat into returns, it doesn't mean you should exclude expensive uh, assets from your portfolio because therefore you may miss out uh, by doing so you may miss out on higher returns that seems to be maybe what they're driving at with this value for money framework even though it sounds like the opposite the the government's done a consultation on this um and um it's um yeah value for money looking at metric standards and disclosure and the findings include that um you know government says you should put an emphasis on value rather than cost and obviously the reason for that is or one of the reasons for that is because they want to invest more in private equity which costs more to invest in the government also says oh yes we're going to look at long term performance too okay but costs eat into long term performance um and what they're going to do among other things to help assess if a scheme is good value for money um is going to introduce a I think a standard set of metrics and standards so you know people can compare them off against each other um yeah I was going to say I mean in terms of other things they've um launched this week they've they've, they've launched a consultation on how to re- address the issue of investors accumulating many small pension pots of different employees over the course of a career which mm. I think you know a lot of us do um, and yeah, basically what it's um, proposing is automatic consolidation, whereby I, f- I think they haven't thrashed at the fine details yet, the consulting on it. Basically, if you move on, um, you know, your the part you left behind, it'll get moved into one of a few consolidated companies, along with whatever other parts you, you leave behind. And because, um, you know, they're quite large, it'll be, you know, scale, good value for money. Um, and it's going to be literally a few select companies that have been carefully vetted to do this. I think yeah. consolidation of pension yeah. pots and pension mm-hmm. schemes is a, is a theme of some of these reforms because they do want to also consolidate pension schemes so that they become bigger pools of capital in some cases, albeit that is uh, you know, some way off from happening. Uh, Alex, you, you were interested in some of the points around market structure that have been uh, announced this week, specifically one of them on the, this idea of an intermittent trading venue for unlisted companies. Yeah, I'm interested. I don't doesn't mean I know what it is. Really. No, well, I mean um, it's 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 new. It's brand new, isn't it? No exactly. one's quite sure yet. They haven't said what it is, yeah. to be honest. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, understand understandably, it's sort of buried beneath the um, you know the the pension reforms, given how important you know addressing that that challenge is. But the um, yeah, so the, the, this intermittent trading venue, as they call, which is you know promises to build a new kind of exchange that that no other exchange has uh, has done before. The idea of it is to is to give private companies access to public capital markets without having to go through the the listing process. So it's a it's a um, it's an interesting idea in that you're you know we're trying to work out new ways of of um, of supporting growth and innovation. Um, for the parts of the economy which don't have ready access to capital markets, obviously there's huge questions over this. Even though the LSE is, you know, supposedly working on it, and Jeremy Hunt said, you know, expect this by the end of, of next year. Um, you know, that the, there are obviously going to be trade-offs here. Governance is one thing you look for when you're you're listing in a public market, and there and checks on the 
uh, on the way that you know your money is invested and, and managed. Um, and then I suppose on the other side, you've got holding periods and you know when is when is it private? When is it public? Is there are there going to be in these intermittent trading windows opportunities opportunities to buy and sell? Um, but I mean, this, yeah, I think it's really something to watch. I mean, particularly you know for retail investors uh, or, or our listeners who you know ways that they might be able to participate either directly or indirectly through whatever funds might might get set up on the back of this. But um, um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting development and I'm quite keen to see what the details here that are going to kind of please all parties. Do we think these any of these reforms could amount to something significant in terms of, you know, the big question on, the, on this topic is, will they work? Will they achieve their desired aim of, you know, reigniting the fire underneath the, uh, the you know, the UK, UK economy, economy. Yeah. the UK as an investment market? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a hard question to say, but I, I think, you know, if, if to give a slightly contrary view on uh, on the mansion, you know, house announcement this week, the, the, we really need to do something. You know, the you know long term for pensioners, um, we, we you know it's it's a positive that we're thinking about improving their long term returns because if not a cliff edge, then we're certainly going to get into sort of long term funding deficits further down the line. Um, and then yeah, that the, you know there is obviously the in, the economic impetus um, behind all of this to sort of facilitate more of a growth economy more of a kind of you know i suppose the comparison is always going to be with america and their you know very business friendly environment we've got loads of great you know technology and biotechnology um and, and science expertise in this country and i suppose the idea is to try and harness this and connect it more to financial markets that's probably a good thing i'd argue and the question of risk uh, it's all unknowable it's all unknowable it's all very hard to you know I think both make the kind of promises Jeremy Hunt has done, um, but at the, the same time, um, it's important, I suppose, to to look at the ways risk can be spread out over decades, which pensions are there to do. So mm. um, it's an attempt to address a really, really tough set of problems. But um, I think it's good we're you know collectively trying to to do this. On that optimistic note, we have come to the end of the show. So thank you very much. To everyone, thank you to Leonora, thank you to both Alex's, thank you to Mark, and thank you to you for listening. We will be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.